Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter. I'm Sean McCraney. We try to do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. And uh, tonight is going to be a big show, like Ed Sullivan used to say, so, so, so much to cover. And uh, I just had a friend say, you know, you might want to tell the audience to uh, really try to have discerning eyes and ears with what we're going to hear and say, uh, because it's all couched around the idea. The name of the show is Making the World a Better Place Commentary. And, and I'm going to be saying some things, uh, uh, but before I get into it, let's just have a word of prayer. Uh, Father, uh, we just love you and seek you. We're grateful that you gave us your only human son, Jesus Christ. Uh, to save us from ourselves, to save this world in its entirety, to reconcile it to you because he's victorious when we are not. And we just pray that we will draw closer to him in spirit and in truth, and we will be full of your grace and full of your love. We pray for our volunteers and the technical s supports and that everything will work well. And people who are seeking for truth may find it. And forgive us for the things that I say that are wrong. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, so much to talk about. We've gone almost the whole summer with me doing a lot of interviews. I haven't, we've even recorded them and I haven't even been here during the recordings. We've just played them for you. And I haven't really been able to catch up and talk about things. And so we're gonna cover about seven different uh, things that have happened here on the stage and in the interviews. And I'm gonna give you some insights on what I thought, plus other things that have happened in the world relative to religion and Mormonism and stuff like that. A couple of announcements first. We established a GoFundMe for Christy Johnson. She was one of our guests this summer. And uh, there's a benefactor who is gonna match up to $5,000 uh, out there for whatever, for every dollar is uh, donated to it. It's, it's the name of the GoFundMe is Christy Johnson, um, Helping Christy Johnson Fight. That's the name of it. Helping Christy Johnson Fight. K-R-I-S-T-Y. And there's also someone who is uh, supporting McKenna Denson. Now, if you don't know, McKenna Denson is the woman who went on a Mormon mission and while she was in the MTC as a young girl, was raped by uh, a man, uh, last name Bishop, in the Mormon church. She has had national uh, exposure. She's going to be on the show September 11th. She'll be our guest here, and we're going to be doing a th uh, two or three hour discussion with her about the whole thing. And she's really gotten some legs in this. She also has a GoFundMe, and the same benefactor is doubling whatever goes in for these two women. And uh, so they have traveling expenses, and, and Christy in particular, she has some particular needs for just day-to-day -day survival. And so I wanted to bring that forward to you. September 11th, McKenna Denson will be our guest. And it should be interesting. She is, uh, she's been through all the press and news with her story. And then next week, September 4th, Bill Allred. Here in Utah, we have a radio station called 96X. Uh, Bill is a materialist, which is pretty much saying you're an atheist. He believes that he will be food for the worms after this life and nothing more. But we had a fantastic, he, he hosts a show called Radio From Hell here in, uh, in, in Salt Lake and uh, has been on the radio for 40 years. So he's a very nice guy, and you get to watch how we engage with each other, another atheist, uh, to talk about. So, And one more thing we want you to be aware of is gonna come to you by way of a spot, which we're gonna show you right now. Paul doesn't say he glories in ordinances and church membership, priesthood authority, family, or baptism. 
He says he glories only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What if that became the main focus of your LDS mission and the rest of your life? It would be beautiful if it was just that easy, but we believe there is more to it than that. Anything added to what Christ accomplished on the cross for us is useless. It ends up being works-based religion. It causes us to take our eyes off the cross and give attention to non-essential matters. What greater ploy could there be than to get people, well-meaning people, to take their eyes off the very place where they were each reconciled to God, and to have them look up at a golden angel on a building that inspires the proud hearts of men? That was a strong statement, but I think I know where you're coming from. I just pray that the Latter-day Saints everywhere, like yourselves, will demand that those golden images on top of their most sacred buildings would be replaced with crosses and cease officiating in man-made ordinances. Elders, I want you to understand all that's commanded of us is summarized in one verse in the Bible. Please read 1 John 3.23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, as he gave us commandment. With that commandment in mind, to believe on Jesus Christ and love one another, I'd like to explain how it applies to the symbolic meaning of the cross. The vertical post pointing upwards toward heaven represents our belief in Jesus and our direct relationship with God. The horizontal cross beam placed on that post reaching outward represents our relationship with others. As Jesus loved God and others, we are called to do the same. I like that. It gives me an appreciation of how to view the cross in a different way than I have in the past as a Mormon. Boy, that was an abrupt ending. Uh, <laughs> talking to Mormons, uh, go on there, subscribe, and uh, it will really, it's, it's a, a kind of a novel, creative way uh, to reach LDS people and teach them how to talk to uh, missionaries. So let's get at this. Uh, we're going to work backwards through interviews. And, and before we, I even talk about the interviews and some of the things that have happened over the summer, uh, there's been some criticism about my uh, interviewing style. And because, for instance, I don't know, I don't study. I don't go and study my topic. Every interviewer uh, that wants to be uh, considered professional and worth their salt studies the topic so that when they sit down with the person, they can engage with them in a, in a very smart, uh, suave way and throw out ideas and have this. I am not about that. I don't care about it. So I just want to set the, the, the tone, make it clear. I am not here to look smart like I understand everything. In the interviews, the purpose is multifold, but it's to understand what they say. I want to know what they say. I don't care about reading what the uh, encyclopedia definition of something is. I want to hear what this person who I'm interviewing has to say. I want to hear from their mouth what they think about the thing. And then I want to illustrate, hopefully, to the viewing audience how perhaps a Christian might engage with a person who has views like we had a transgender man, a woman, and we've had atheists, and we've had a woman who was abused by religion sexually and covered up and all these things. So you have to understand, you can criticize me and say, you should know that an atheist is a materialist and that I get a lot of the stuff, but I'm not going to be your standard interviewer. So phenopole to you. I don't do things the way you want me to. I do it the way I feel I'm led to do it. So stop with the stupid criticisms. All right. Last week we had Dan L. Ellis, an atheist. 
on the show, and I thought the exchanges opened us up to some dialogue with each other where we both learned, and hopefully making the world, and that's kind of the topic, making the world a better place, uh, at least between two men, one who is an atheist and another one who is a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I've received some calls and texts and some emails on the interview, but, uh, and we all have our respective views, and everybody throws their uh, ring into the hat of what could be said to an atheist and what the atheist could have said to me, et cetera, et cetera, all to help make the world a better place. Uh, but uh, we got a letter from a 20-year police veteran. Uh, I'm going to call him PB. And he took exception to Dan suggesting that if God exists, he's a monster. Now, I think it's important. I think this email is an important email, so I'm going to read part of it. It says, good day. I want to take a moment to address one of Dan's positions as to why God would allow a young child to be raped repeatedly and not do anything about it. I agree with 98% of what Dan said regarding religion and so on. The 2% I disagree with is one, that God does not exist, and two, that God is a monster. I have been in law enforcement for close to 20 years and have seen, heard, smelled atrocities that I wish nobody else has had to see, smell, or hear. When Dan asked his question and blamed God for not interviewing, I do understand and I mean no disrespect, so please don't take it that way, but Dan, you are a Monday morning quarterback. Now this is from a guy who's in the trenches in a metropolis type city and I know from talking to him, he has seen some heinous stuff. Listen to his perspective, though. Why would God allow a young child to be raped repeatedly and do nothing about it? Sir, you have no clue what God does about it. You sit back and hear stories about such atrocities and you burn with anger about the story. Perhaps I'm assuming maybe you are out there fighting evil on a daily basis. Perhaps you have in the past. Perhaps you've done nothing, but we, sir, first responders, don't just hear about it. We see it, smell it, and live it. If you care so much about the atrocities, then do something about it. Who are you to say that God does nothing about it? Are you out there daily seeing what God does? Every day I see God intervening. Every day God sends people like us to intervene. God sends people like us to stop the dad who anally raped his 10-year-old daughter who had cancer. These are the kind of things he sees. Did God send me to prevent it? In this case, no. But God did send me to stop it, and it stopped for at least the next 30 years according to his sentence. I truly wonder how many horrible first things first responders stop and prevent. It's an answer we will perhaps never know. I've often wondered that if I get the opportunity to meet God, when I, he will let me know how much pain and evil we as first responders have prevented. Maybe we stop rapes. Maybe we stop murders. Maybe we stop suicides. Maybe we stop torture. Who knows? That is an answer is currently unknown. And then uh, PB makes this point. He says, I personally don't enjoy Christian music. However, one song I do agree with, it's called Do Something. In the song, the artist talks about shaking his fist at God saying, God, why don't you do something? And the song continues and God responds, I did. I made you. This perfectly explains Christianity, says PB. 
To say that God does not stop atrocities is fallible. God made men and women like me and you, people who stop atrocities daily. I've had people tell me personally, if you would not have shown up when you did, this or that would have happened. Stories such as these are a dime a dozen in my life. Coincidence? Too many for me to personally see a coincidence. God does do something about it every single second of every single day around the world through soldiers, police, fire people, and good Samaritans. Do bad things still happen? Yes. Will they ever stop? No. If God intervened in every single circumstance, then it would just be a God of puppets. What kind of God would that make? Why does God intervene? Why does God intervene before the bad thing happens with some people? I don't know. Why does God intervene after the atrocity occurs? I don't know. But I can say God does intervene countless of times every second around the world. I've been there to see it, and I've been there to experience it countless times. He says in summary, bottom line, I believe, sir, you are viewing God with the glass half empty. You have the absolute right to ask the question why terrible things happen to innocent people. I still wonder that many times in my life. I fight for the innocent every day. I despise those who pray against the innocent. However, stop and think for a moment about how many terrible things are stopped by those who are willing to do something about it. I love the beard. I love your sense of humor. Let's get a beer sometime. Please, no hard feelings. In the end, I realized Dan would have probably responded to PB's email differently, and we would have gone back and forth in the dialogue, but I want to summarize PB's points. God's way of doing something about atrocity occurs by those living in this realm. And to me, this is evidenced by God's Son becoming flesh in order to do something about this realm. The fact that God became flesh shows that God has to enter into this realm in order to do something about most things. That's why his son entered this realm. So when we pass along the idiotic constant idea that God is up there in absentee management and he's just not really doing anything, I think it's really a misappropriation of what uh, the faith is all about. And finally he says, in this way, uh, I see God intervening. Now, to make our topic really complex about making the world a better place, the next situation is an example of what appears to be people trying to make the world a better place. It appears to be good people doing good things to make the world a better place, but I hate it, and uh, I hate what they're doing. And so we're going to be left with the question, where do we draw the line in doing the work of God to protect people? And when do we trample on rights and thoughts of individuals and their freedoms to choose? The topic I'm talking about uh, came out last week when the LDS sent an actual email to their members. I have a copy of it sitting right here. And this is what uh, it said. You're familiar with it. I know if you've been online or if you've been awake at all in the past few weeks uh, here in the state. And the letter says... Uh, in November, Proposition 2, an initiative which would legalize the sale and use of marijuana will appear on the ballot. It goes on and talks about different things, and then it says in bold, as a member of a co this coalition, which they've described, we urge voters of Utah to vote no on Proposition 2. It's in big, bold letters. This was emailed to members of the Mormon Church in this state. So, is this a case of 
Good Samaritans stepping in and stopping evil like PB mentioned. You start to see that it becomes difficult when we start to add different factors. Or is this what Dan the Atheist mentioned about hating about Christianity and religion? That they use their power and pull to legislate morality like the LDS Church did with, for instance, Prop 8 in California. So before I add my two cents, I want you to understand my personal view about marijuana, okay? I hate the shit. I hate it. I hate it because I have seen what it can do to good people. Um, for instance, in the McCraney family, the McCraney tree, the vast McCraney tree, uh, I, we have seen pot ruin people. Some of you might remember that there was a sign in Hollywood, the Hollywood sign, and it was changed last year to Hollyweed. That was done by my nephew. He, his life is destroyed by pot. Uh, we see people in our family whose lives fall down the drain from the stuff. Now, I'm not saying that happens to everybody, and I'm not saying that people shouldn't use it who need it for medicine, but even for medicine in the McCraney family, pot destroys lives, and I hate it. I really do, and I've tried it. I had an edible a couple years ago. about destroyed my mind. I thought I was part of the TV. It was horrible. But I tried it because, you know, they were saying, hey, this is different now. So I said, okay, let's see what happens with it. McCraney's don't do well with substances as it goes, but pot, I'm really against. So uh, while I personally hate pot, I hate religions like Mormonism coming in and trying to take political control over it even more. Um, so much so that I see their actions as far more sinister and evil than the indiscriminate use of marijuana by people today. Herein lies the balance between self-regulation of individuals and their families choosing and totalitarian regimes. That's what we're talking about. And the latter being evil and the former being imperfect. Bottom line, when the Mormon church steps in under the auspices of making the world a better place and they tell their members how to vote, we are witnessing despotism, totally. And they justify their actions by labeling it a moral issue rather than a political one. Two weeks ago, this is a true story, right in these seats over here, we had a man and a woman and their baby come from Ogden. I'd never seen them before. And they told me a story. They had left the Mormon church over this story. The man had a body part run over uh, in the military, and it crushed this part of his body. And I'm not telling you the part because I don't want to indict him. And um, the military gave him opiates, and he used opiates for the pain, and he became addicted to opiates, horribly addicted to opiates. So uh, his life turned to complete crap. And in time, he pulled himself up, uh, which many people can't do, and he discovered, hey, I can alleviate my addiction to opiates. This is a true story by using marijuana combined with another uh, substance called kratom. And so natural painkillers and don't have the addictive effects. Uh, he and his wife went to a Temple Recommend interview, and they were talking with their bishop, and he said in the course of the discussion that he took the responsibility for
for his own care by smoking marijuana instead of using opiates. And he was chided and he was told by the bishop he must cease using the marijuana immediately. And the guy asked him, would you rather have me addicted to opiates? And the, the uh, gist from the bishop was, whatever's legal. And so the guy kicked back and they took his temple recommend. So he goes to the LDS stake president and was told that if he didn't stop using pot, the church leaders would report he and his wife to Child Protective Services because he's using a substance that is illegal in the state and endangering the child. And when that happens, they take your children away from you sometimes. Now this woman, she's, she looked like a deer in the headlights. She was mowed through and through. And she is irate at what the church has done, their leaders have done, again, to try to control uh, the situation. True story from the Wasatch Front. So what is the difference between improving the world through the first responders and Good Samaritans that uh, BP was talking about and institutional political manipulations that come down the pike? The first is an example of good people individually choosing to freely give their lives to help others, devote their lives to helping others. This is Christianity or an expression of it. The second is a master manipulation built on compulsion and often self-serving corporate agendas, like huge portfolios in pharmaceutical companies. Over a billion dollars the Mormons have in pharmaceutical companies who certainly don't want people to freely use a drug that I personally hate. It has its downsides, but shouldn't people have the right to choose it? It's one thing for the people of Germany to have decided uh, during the Second World War, we don't like burlesque. We want to take all the burlesque houses down. That's one thing. It's an entirely different matter when the Third Reich came in because Hitler hated uh, burlesque and mandatorily shut them down. You see the difference? One act is based in freedom of the people, the other in despotism. The LDS Mormon leadership has their collective heads stuffed so far up their worldviews, they think they're on God's errand. And they send out something like this, and their faithful believe that this is the best way to go when all they're doing is protecting their own common interest. The next rant is going to be hard to present without being misunderstood. But that hasn't stopped us before. Uh, it goes in hand in hand with the topic of how are we making the world a better place reasonably. The older I get, the more I resent empty causes and marches as a means to do something because there's nothing else we seem to be able to do. And where marches and protests worked in the 60s, it was a different time and place. And I don't believe our present world can or will respond to them with the same effectiveness that they had in the 60s, in part because there's so many of them. Here's the thing that many people miss when it comes to causes against evil empires. That when you attack an evil empire, over a cause, it often benefits the evil empire more than it hurts them. And because when an evil empire makes an improvement, 
on something that a group is mad about, it just makes the evil empire look progressive. And it makes the evil empire look like they have are really, really modern in their thinking, and therefore it makes more people like them. And so people sit around the table and they say, did you hear that such and such empire isn't doing this anymore? You're kidding. Wow, well, that's really great. Maybe I'll go check them out. Why? Because when something in an evil empire has improved that does not destroy the empire, the evil empire ultimately will benefit. We don't think of it this way. As an example, let's say there's a hardcore pornography company that uh, has a long history of beating its female porn stars. And that's not far uh, fed. They, that In the 70s and 80s, the porn star women were often beaten. And, you know, so, but uh, let's just say that uh, it's all, the, the industry as a whole is an affront to females. But let's just say that the p hardcore porn industry in Southern California in the valley is beating its women. And let's say that today 10,000 people stand up and protest against this practice of beating women porn stars. And such and such hardcore porn industry makes a stance and puts an end to the mistreatment. They even come out and they apologize for their history and they donate large amounts of money to battered women's shelters. This will cause the 10,000 protesters to say, hoorah, hoorah. I mean, right? Hardcore porn doesn't beat its women anymore. We've had a victory, right? But the reality is the evil empire still exists and it's still evil and it has really only changed a policy of practice and what it does and it's still objectifying women and it's still warping people's mind with their product. So this is the problem with hacking at the branches of something and not striking at the root. Another aspect, making the world a better place. Strike to the root and forget the branch hacking. When we look at the LDS church, there was a time when it didn't allow black men to hold their priesthood. Then comes the 1978 decision to give all worthy males their priesthood. And what was the result of that? People are shouting, glory be! The black man can have our priesthood. And it's on the front page of the Times and Chicago Tribune, LDS give priesthood to the blacks. Who's heralded there? The LDS. And Mormonism appears progressive and improving, even good. Not good, never good, still not good. I mean, the reality is the revelation is celebrating Mac, black men becoming eligible to receive a priesthood that's false in the first place, <laughs> which is just unbelievably insidious. We're celebrating about black men now having to be worthy to hold a false priesthood. Talk about ridiculousness and not even thinking outside the box. All we say is an equality was distributed even though the equality is an evil assumption against Christ, according to Hebrews. And what about women? So the black men get it. The women still don't have the false priesthood. So we're battling for women to get the false priesthood. And when women get it, oh, the church is giving the women the false black priesthood. Right? So... And then there's the false premise of worthiness to hold 
the false priesthood, and then taking the priesthood that belongs only to Jesus, according to Hebrews. So in the end, listen, there's no victory in winning these little victories over Mormonism. They're the ones who are winning, idiots. They're the ones who are winning, and they know it. The longer they hold out, the more it seems like they are in communication with God over this matter. And he will reveal to them that they should change this policy. And then when they do, all the saints say, our prophet does talk to God. They're so stupid. It's, we're not changing or affecting anything with these branch hacking approaches. And it's exactly why hacking at the truth of an empire is far more important than making progress by pruning their branches. Now, if you're a person that's all about improving earthly conditions through progressive acts, then blacks getting a false priesthood is going to be exciting to you because you really don't care about the truth. But that is really a short-lived victory when the spoils will be shared by the institution itself. I suggest that we stop hacking at the branches of evil trees and spend our time and resources chopping at the damn roots. Let's just keep at the roots. I was reading Walden years ago, years ago, 20, 30 years ago, and it helped me understand this. Henry David Thoreau says, quote, there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one who is striking at the root. And it may be that he who bestows the largest amount of time and money on the needy is doing the most by his mode of life to produce that misery which he strives in vain to relieve. Think about what Thoreau says. Unfortunately, folks, we are a world of branch hackers. That's what we are. And it goes hand in hand with failing to live by principles and instead living by emotions. So we have this cause celebre here, and we have this exciting mounting movement there, and all of us feel that we're contributing and accomplished. And yes, policy changes help protect people, especially women and children. Along the way, the empire's destruction is imminent. Uh, it's good, and that's why I support people, for instance, like Sam Young. And Sam Young, uh, his attempt to change something within the Mormon church to protect people along the way. But I want Sam and his leadership to, help, to squarely strike at the root and put an end to all LDS abuses. And for that to happen, the attack needs to be focused and directed at real exposure. This is what people aren't going to like or get. I mean, let's suppose that Sam has the victory he seeks. And I would suggest that some good will be done, but the Mormons will participate in that good and will parlay it to their own benefit. And all the while, they will continue. Here's the evil. Continue to make kids feel unworthy. The kid who masturbates still won't get to go do baptisms for the dead in the temple. He'll sit outside the temple while the other kids participate because they either lied or whatever. This stuff will still go on, and guilty adults... Will, will continue to feel that God doesn't love them. And the reality is policy changes really amount to nothing more than snipping off the twig of a giant oak. That's all they do when, we're, when we focus on it. And uh, yes, there have been many painful events that have occurred because of policies in religion on race and gender and interviewing children. But what is the root? And until we as a people start saying we want the roots addressed, 
Um, I don't think the policy changes will do anything but help them. So until we start thinking, until we start uniting on clear principles and resisting the short term and the, the, the spotlight of the short term, uh, we will forever serve to only prune the trees of evil empires, which ultimately will benefit them, as I've said. And I know how important these th things seem. I really do know. And who wants a child to be embarrassed for life? I was embarrassed by the bishops many times. I get it. I know it's not good. Uh, but from a strategic, long-term view, if we really want to do something uh, against what Mormonism stands for today, we have to start from the roots up. Um, in, in a way, it's going to sound harsh, but we're kind of like chimpanzees in a fireworks show. And, you know, a thing goes, ooh, ooh, and ha, 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 look at it, it's so beautiful, you know? It's the instant pops that we're just, the thunder, it's so impressive, you know? But once this last skyrocket goes and the smoke clears, that phallus of a building down there on North Temple is going to remain standing. It's going to remain standing. And all the chimpanzees will go back home and they'll wait for the next fireworks show. And that thing will keep getting richer and richer because we have not united on the, on the root problems. Uh, call me radical, uh, but humbly, I'm right. So what's the difference between seeking a policy change from a religious empire and the work of someone like Christy Johnson, who we had here on the show? I mean, she has a cause too. Her cause is, listen, if a crime goes on in the LDS church, that crime should be reported to the police. We've interviewed her for three hours. It's been very popular. Many people have watched it. Many people are touched. I was touched. Christy's life is important to me. I knew her as a, a teenager. And Christy is legally pursuing, legally going after the empire for its practice. She's not endorsing the good Mormonism does. She's going after them for the evil they do legally. To me, that is more of a root hack than a branch policy hack. So, but I want to address something relative to Christy, and this is going to sound bad, but I think it's important. After we finished airing the three-part interview, uh, which were devastating, I want to point out something that I had a discussion with Cassidy, my middle daughter, about. And then I later discussed this with Christy. And I very rarely re-watch the shows where I'm just talking like this. Uh, and occasionally I'll re-watch interviews, because I want to hear what they're saying. And Christie's interview was one I rewatched. Stepping back and trying to watch and hear what she presented without any sort of preconceived notions about her and knowing her and knowing the backstory, just watching her presentation, it lacked in believability. I watched it and I thought, your facts I know are, are true. I saw the film. I, I've read the stories. Your facts are true. Your dad did what he did. But when I'm watching you, Christy, I'm just not buying it, you know? And so, fortunately, she was armed with evidence that, you know, letters and voicemails and, and actual video footage that her dad had done to her what she had said he had done. So she was telling the truth, but again, standing back and watching her speak, I thought that her delivery was not wholly convincing and her ability to recall facts and dates and situations was impressive. But it didn't convince me personally. So after I watched that, I had to ask myself, why isn't Christy 100% believable to me as I watch her retell this? And after some real soul searching, and then I had a conversation with my daughter Cassidy, 
And she said, also agreed, yeah, I didn't, as, as an individual presenting these things, she herself was not convincing. And we had to talk, why do we see it that way? Her facts are convincing, but why do we see what she's saying from her person as not convincing? And we realized that the fact that we did not find Christie's presentation completely believable was our problem. It wasn't hers at all. You see, we realize that as observers of other people's pain, we want to see them cry and we want to see them scream and throw something. We want to see that emotion that comes with such horrible stories, right? and tears and anger to help convince us for them to sell us that the story is true. And in Christie's case, and I knew this about her as an individual growing up, outside of the things her dad did to her, when she was able to engage with us as teenagers and then as a woman sitting here on the stage, engaging with us without the story, she's a strong woman. I mean, she's, and she's smart, and she's funny, and she laughs, and she has a regular ongoing life, you know, that is strong. And so she could put a stiff upper lip on, but then once we realized this, we said to ourselves, then there must be a time when she lets it all down, when it all goes south. And so we started talking about what those times must be. And, you know, it must be when she goes home and she doesn't have a normal relationship with another man, sustainable relationship, because of the things that have happened to her in part. It must be the loneliness. It must be that she can't really, she doesn't work and keep a job because she has been so devastated by this. And when she tries, that it, this gets in the way sometimes. And just started talking about the hell she really does live in. And that it's so ridiculous for us to think, boy, sell me, when if she did, she would go insane every time having to talk about it to reveal her heart out on her sleeve and share it to convince people, I don't think you could mentally take it. So she puts on the face to share the story, but her life has been devastated. And I think being as tough a person as Christy is, this coping mechanism came through loud and clear as she presented the facts, but not the emotions of her story to us. But when we realized that behind closed doors, the daily machinations of life and the potential romances lost with, with men and interpersonal relationships and friends and things, I'm not saying she doesn't have friends, but she suffers in silence. And as time passed since the interview, I've talked to Christy and I told her about these thoughts. And the reality of what Cassie and I discussed came forth. So uh, where we have never suffered abuse like this and watch her story and feel for her, we're also able to let things go and walk out and have a regular life. But I can't imagine what would happen to one of my daughters, if they were subject to this treatment over the course of their young childhood all the way up into their teens, would I expect them to function normally and then they're handicapped and, or disabled and uh, affected emotionally and psychologically for the rest of their life? So I've learned that in her moments, darkness is real and deep 
and it's prevented her in a lot of ways. I'm not making excuses for people, but I am being realistic about the facts as they stand. And the facts are Christy is in trouble and she does need our help. And we, as I said, we established a GoFundMe. I've been asked to participate in these before. I've never done it. I've turned them all down. I don't like them. I have another phrase for GoFundMe. And I, uh, but uh, this one, I really do believe in. And I believe in her and I believe in her cause. And now that her dad has sided with the church and is defending the church and all the accusations against it, if you are in a position and if you are able to help make this world a better place and to get behind a cause, I think this is a good one. We set it up, it's there to help her, and it's called Helping Christy Johnson Fight. And that was a play on words, not only fight against what's happening with her with the church, but to fight for life itself. Two more points and we'll wrap it up. Open up the phone lines if there are any calls. The LDS newspaper, the Deseret News, recently reported, you know this, that Mormon prophet Russell M. Nelson said, quote, the Lord has impressed upon my mind the importance of the name he has revealed for his church, even the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, President Nelson said in a statement. He added, we have work before us to bring ourselves in harmony with his will. In recent weeks, various church leaders and departments have initiated the necessary necessary steps to do so. A style guide released by the church alongside the statement said, please avoid using abbreviation LDS or the nickname Mormon as substitutes for the name of the church as in Mormon church, LDS church, or Church of the Latter-day Saints. In other words, the church using the Lord's name as the reason for the shift this is almost him saying he's had a revelation, thus saith the Lord. The Mormon prophet is trying to alter what Mormonism has used themselves for centuries to identify themselves. And I've read and heard all sorts of reasons about why they've done it. And I just want to just make my reason uh, clear as to why I think they've done it. And when I wrote Born Again Mormon, the proper way to write LDS was no longer L period D period S period. It changed. It used to be that. And Levina Fielding Anderson, who edited the book, said, no, we just, now we just write LDS all uppercase. And there's a reason, because especially in this day and age, when you have search engine optimization and everything is Mormon-oriented, and all you got to do is type in Mormon and you come up with the stuff, if they can start to remove themselves as a church away from that name and from LDS and Mormon, and they can say, we are the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. First of all, who the heck's going to type that in? And when they do, they are going to be removed from the Mormon stories. They are making a preemptive strike to separate themselves from all the negative online stuff through search engine optimization. They're going to capitalize on it by saying, by calling themselves the Restored Church of Jesus Christ and or the Church of Jesus Christ, those two things. And that's going to mix them in the body of information through search engine optimization that is Christian. So what they've done is they've stepped away from their Mormon unique identity, and that's where all the ugliness lies, and they're pushing themselves in, mixing in with Christianity itself through this move. Russell M. Nelson says it's the Lord who told them this should happen, I wonder. Let's wrap up tonight with a little bit of bright, encouraging news in my estimation. Over the year, I have bashed the heck out of churches that preach tithes 
to their congregation and take up collections in their weekly services of people there to worship and know the Lord. I still stand by that. I've named some of the churches in this community that are guilty of it. Uh, South Mountain and Draper is a big target in my mind. I don't know why people go there, still don't. K2 and Murray, Calvary Chapel and Taylorsville, Murray area. Uh, all of them, I've said, they do it. They pass a plate, sometimes more than once, to get the monies to operate their empire. Uh, Pastor Terry Long of Calvary Chapel, on his own, on his own, and actually returning back to something he used to do when the church first started, has stepped forward, in my opinion, in the right direction. And as far as I'm concerned, what he is telling his congregants at Salt, uh, Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake City, it says this, not as far as I'm concerned, this is what he said. Quote, starting August 12th, we're going to stop passing the basket at all of our services. I applaud that. Here are some reasons. Listen to his reasons. One, we teach where God guides, he will provide. I love this. That's awesome. Not passing the plate lives out this principle. We are truly trusting God. Two, the Bible says, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your father who is in secret will himself reward you openly. Second great reason for removing this practice from Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake City. Third, the ushers responsible and time will shift from offering to being available for all newcomers, loving on the church, and ready to pray for all who need it. So he's taken the staff that has been used in the past to collect, and he's saying, now you just pray with the people. Uh, fourth, we want the service to have as little distractions as possible. This is such a mature move. This is so honorable of Pastor Terry to do. So people can hear the Bible being taught. Someone new to the faith or someone that is researching may not understand the reason for taking the offering. The enemy has done very well in making people think that the church is all about money. And some churches are, Terry, so you've done a good job. And next one, we need to be clear in our teaching and instruction that giving is a form of worship to God and with all that we have and are. They are there are many ways to give. Offering boxes, internet, phones, etc., we will make sure everyone knows how to give financially to Calvary. The bottom line is we want people to know Jesus. It is all about him. We will teach about giving and leave the rest to God. So I'm so impressed personally with Pastor Terry's courageous decisions. In fact, I want to tell you that if you go to Calvary Chapel, I hope that the Lord will move you to give more because of this decision. And, you know, if you are looking for a church to go to and you have a family, go to Calvary Chapel. I'd suggest if you're going to a church that's passing a collection plate while you're sitting there supposing to hear about Jesus, go to Calvary Chapel. Take your family to Calvary Chapel. Walk out of those churches that won't give in on this. He just gave us five reasons why, which were great reasons. Your pastor insists on continuing to do it. Walk from it. Go to Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake City. Support a pastor who is brave enough to step out and make a decision. I think it is wonderful. Now, you might ask yourself, how come uh, we don't, I don't say come to campus? The reason is campus is a very small 
institution. We are all about teaching. It takes a certain person, a lot of single people or older people whose children are raised. And the few families we do have, our, our nursery area is very small and we have nothing for teens. So you have to really be a unique type of family unit to want to come here. It's really not for that. It's for our teachings and, and, and to learn, and it's not so much about the fellowship and all that goes on with family churches. So again, if you're looking for a family church, go to Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake City, and, uh, and give them uh, uh, a go. All right, with that, do we have anybody on the phones, which I can't reach? We do not. I think we're almost out of time anyway. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, for this follow-up. Next week, we have the DJ of 96X, Bill Allred. It's a fascinating discussion. Bill's a unique guy. And then the following week, we have McKenna uh, Denson and her story about the rape that occurred at the MTC and how the LDS Church covered it up. See you next week on Heart of the Matter.